0: This is the fifth talk in the series, New Beginnings, which we are recording for the Vineyard Church, our pop-up church, if you like. And I've entitled it, The Sign of Jonah, The Pattern for Our Lives. And we start with reading Luke 11 and from verse 27, where Jesus has been teaching his disciples and the wider group on prayer In Luke's gospel, that's where it comes, the Lord's prayer comes. And then there's been this whole incident with him casting out a demon and then speaking about it. And a woman in the crowd pipes up and she says, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you sucked. And Jesus responds to her and he says this, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. And then he goes directly into this the crowds kept increasing and jesus began to say to them this generation is an evil generation it looks for a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of jonah jonah was assigned to the people of nineveh just so the son of man will be a sign to this generation the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation will condemn them She came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and will condemn it. They repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, when a baby plays with a ball... Just get this in your this picture in your mind a baby is playing a small baby is playing with a ball sitting there and it rolls under a chair and out of sight and the baby then looks for something else to play with it's known as object permanence if he can see it that's great if he can't see it it doesn't exist And I suppose it's interesting that I'm talking to you today on what is known as Ascension Day, when Jesus ascended to the Father. Because it's this whole thing of, what do we do when we aren't certain about what's happened, when we feel at a loss, when we lose things? Um, Let's go back to this whole thing of object permanence. A good mother constantly meets the needs of her baby, a good father, around the clock, feeding, changing, caring, and so on. But if she continues, or if he continues to do this, in that way, in that same way, wiping the mouth, cleaning the ba- the, the nappy, past a certain point, they would be bad parents. Because if a child never learns to deal with absence as well as presence. If we insist on having the mother present at all times, indispensable, the world would narrow down to that relationship until he would see only her. He can't begin to mature, to grow up, to become fully who he is meant to be unless he deals both with her presence and with her absence. And God is a a really good mother. We think of Psalm 23 and the whole first few um, lines are this wonderful litany about how God provides and how he nurtures and how we live besides streams of living water. But then suddenly we are faced with this cataclysmic thing even though we walk through the valley of deep darkness, the valley of death, and we begin to grow up. We We may behave like spoiled children, and maybe we should ask ourselves this question. When problems arise, what happens? Do we have a tantrum? tantrum? Do we blame God? Do we fall about in a heap and say, why is God doing this to me? You see, when we grapple with this whole thing of absence and presence, we have to learn to know how to trust. We understand that God is always with us to the end of the age, but We don't always feel it. We don't always see it. We have to learn to trust. And we have to learn to live with absence as well as presence because that's the starting point of faith. That's square one, if you like. I can't see God. I can't feel Him. I don't have a warm, fuzzy feeling in worship or when I read the Bible or whenever. But I trust God, I trust that he's there, I trust that he's good, I trust that he's in charge, that he's the king, that he's the lord of the universe, and that he's working out his purposes, even if I can't see them. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, or conviction. The message puts it like this, The fundamental fact of existence is that this faith, this trust in God, is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. Think of it like this, perhaps, in a different way. You're going on a hike. You're packing a backpack. You get there and you start to walk. That's the beginning. The packing, the organizing, the preparation, if you like. Up till that point, everything is in your control. After that, when you start to walk, almost nothing is under your control. Now you're dealing with things that are unpredictable, uncertain. You might slip. There's changes in the weather. There may be animals that you encountered that you didn't expect. The mood of your companions, your physical body might not be so great. You see, up to the point that you begin to walk, you are living by sight. After you've started walking, you are walking by faith. We enter into the experience itself. We enter into the journey. We start by doing. That's square one, where we have to trust, where we learn to put ourselves at God's disposal. And we do that every single day. So, how are we going to navigate this journey? How are we going to, what map will we use? So, here's the fundamental thing, in a sense first thing is that God speaks to us the second thing is that we have to listen and the third thing is that we have to respond God says I learn to trust I listen and I respond now it's interesting in the Greek there's two words for um, uh, that we use for listening and responding and they're almost identical except for a tiny difference the Greek word to listen is akouo. And the Greek word for to respond, to be obedient, to observe is hoop akouo. Two parts of the whole. You can't listen without a response. So God speaks to us. And, and let's say God speaks to us both through his word, through the scriptures, but also through the daily experience of our lives. Um, if you think of Romans twelve, uh, Romans eight, verse twenty-eight, God makes all things work together to good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So God speaks. Now, none of us would say that that's not true. But there's two things that then are our response: we we listen, akuo, and we respond, hupakuo. Let's look at an example: Job. No question but that Job is a man who is um, upright. It says in the very first verse, he was upright and blameless, fearing God, turning away from evil. There wasn't anybody like Job. And then all of a sudden, and you go and read Job chapter 1 and chapter 2 again, it's very good. But all of a sudden, he's dealing with massive disruption. Chaos, loss, death. Not only of his livestock and his wealth, but his children. And then, at a further point, his own health. So, from a place of uh, green pastures and flowing streams to the valley of the shadow of deep darkness, Job is plunged into this whole Psalm 23 Uh, scenario and he's faced with with what he does with it this huge loss that he has to deal with and in this loss this sense of God's absence he's not there what is he going to do he's faced with this enormous mystery this all the normal ways of accounting for life and how it works Um, there's this uncertainty this unknowing and for him, nothing less than God will do. It's He started on the journey. Up until that point, he's been in control. It's been neat. It's been organized. It's been familiar. Now he's in where he's not been before. And then God speaks to him. So you go all the way through Job to chapter 38. And in verse 1 it said, God speaks to him out of the storm, out of the whirlwind, is what the old original King James put. But out of the storm, out of the chaos, out of the crisis, God speaks to him, and it's sufficient. God doesn't answer his questions. That's interesting. God doesn't explain the mystery to him. But the fact that God speaks to him is enough for Job. And I think if we are um, honest, it's enough for us. But what's interesting is that most of the text of the book of Job is taken up with spiritual talk of Job's religious advisors, companions, friends. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, Elihu. From chapter 4 to chapter 37 in the, in, in the book of Job, it's basically these friends giving him all their good advice from their own experience. It's not an encounter with God. It's not even his encounter with God. It's their good uh, advice that they're giving him. And one commentator says nearly all of it, all the things that these friends say is true, but almost nothing that they say is true in the context of Job's life. So none of this that happens between chapter 4 and chapter 38 in Job is about listening to God and answering God. Akuo, hupakuo, responding. You see, nobody can listen to God for you or for me or for us as a congregation. We have to do it ourselves. We are unique. We are individuals. We are um, part of the family and God speaks to us in this particular way. So Eliphaz is the first to speak and he supports what he has to say by documenting his own authority, his own experience. It's not bad. And the stuff that Eliphaz talks about um, is probably stuff that has actually happened to him. Uh, But he tells Job he must have sinned, otherwise he wouldn't be suffering in this particular way. He has this kind of cause and effect mentality. There's no sense of mystery. He can answer all the questions. And that, Job is not impressed. This goes on for a bit. And uh, basically, um, what Job wants isn't advice. What Job wants is God. God to speak to him. He doesn't want to hear Eliphaz. He doesn't want to hear Bildad, Zophar, Elahu talk about their experiences. He needs God. And so do we. And so do the people that we come into contact with. So there's no evidence that Eliphaz, this first friend, is a fraud or that his experiences are not real. But it's put to us in such a way that we realize that they are not significant for Job. Yes, they may be helpful in a variety of different ways, but the problem is with all these experiences... um, and the talking about feelings and experiences, it's not what Job has experienced. And we need to come to the place where we get back to square one, where we understand that we listen to God call us, God heal us, God forgive us, God love us. The word spoken to us. Whether, whether it's um, what we read on a daily basis as we read our scriptures or how we grapple with what is happening is in our daily experience is a sense that we are listening to God. God speaks, we listen, and we respond. Now, if we go back to Luke 11, and as I said, the context is always important, Um when this woman says, blessed are you, uh, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts on which you, at which you sucked. And Jesus says, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. And that's why we've taken time this morning to just uh, grapple with this whole thing of hearing the word, responding to it in the context of um, a storm a valley of deep darkness, a crisis, a loss. And then Jesus says some very hard-sounding words that this is an evil generation. It looks for a sign and no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jonah was a sign to the people of Nineveh and so it, it it carries on. In the context, Jesus is saying, the thing that's important is that those who hear and observe the word of God. Those who akuo and hupakuo with the word of God are the ones who are blessed. And then he says to them, now hear this. The sign that you're going to be given, no other sign except the sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah, we ask? Well, just think of all the stuff that Jesus has been doing. He's just, he's just, dealt with a, a, a situation of deliverance with a, a, a demoniac. Think of the healings and all the illnesses that Jesus has dealt with. But he says, this is the sign. And if you go and read in in Matthew or Mark, as well as in Luke, this comes up repeatedly, that the sign that they are going to be given is the sign of Jonah. And as we learn to hear and to keep In other words, to do, to respond to God's word. Um, We need to keep this as the central metaphor for Jesus. This is the thing that was the most important thing for him to say to them. This is the sign that you need to recognize. The sign of Jonah. It's the only sign he's going to give. And it's not about the miracles. It's not about all these other things. The walking on water, the healing people. Jesus is really clear. He's clarifying at this point the core of his message, the mystery of faith, if you like. If you don't get this, then you just don't get it. And here's what it is. Without the sign of Jonah, Christianity just becomes another way to win. The pattern, the sign of Jonah is... This pattern, the pattern that new life comes only through death. New life is only after we've been through the belly of the whale. Resurrection happens only when you have died and you have been in the grave. Now that might be an uncomfortable truth, but that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying this is the core of his message. This is the only sign that he's going to give. The pattern of new life is only through death. You see, we've become in the West so used to the language of ascent, of growth, of improvement, of climbing up the ladder, of, of, of attaining this or that or the next thing, of continual progress upwards which is in complete contrast to the life that Jesus lived and what he is saying to us is the core sign that he gives. The pattern of new life is only through death. The pattern of new life is only as we descend, as we are humbled, as we serve, as we lose ourselves in that sense. It's a journey of descent, of becoming less Job got it right and he understood what God was doing. Jonah he hears the word of God, he runs, he's 3 days in the whale, well, he repents and then there's he's spat out to new life and he goes to the people of Nineveh. Whether he actually gets it by the end is left hanging in the balance. Then as you read through the Old Testament you come to Jeremiah. What about John the Baptist? who is the precursor and the announcer of Jesus' coming, he says in John 3, verse 20, um, I must decrease, he must increase. It's interesting that John gets it right at the beginning, that Jesus comes and we must decrease, he must increase. Jesus' death and resurrection is just like Jonah. He's saying that's the sign, the way of the cross And when we talk about the cross, and we're talking about taking up our cross, the way of the cross, unfortunately, has become what Jesus did to save us. And that's true. It begins with that. Obviously, it begins with that. We're not saying that's not true. But we've left it at that. We haven't seen it as the pattern for our own existence, the pattern for the way in which we actually find new life and resurrection. When Jesus says it's finished, he's saying... Yes, this is how it happens. This is where it goes. That we are, um, we, we are, in a sense, brought into the whole process. So, the necessary pattern that is redemptive and is for all of us is this, that new life only comes through death. And we all have to walk this route. We all have to walk it on a regular basis. And it's difficult. Make no mistake, it's difficult. We can't get to a place of maturity or healing. We will be like kids who, when the ball rolls under the, under the chair, will say, okay, what's the next thing? That didn't work. Instead of learning to deal with the absence of God, the loss, the sense of chaos, or the valley of deep darkness of Psalm 23... John 12, verse 24 and 25 in the message goes like this. Listen carefully. Unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground, dead to the world, it is never more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over. In the same way, anyone who holds onto life, just as it is, destroys that life. But if you let it go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. There's the story of a lone sailor and he's out way in the depths of the ocean, let's just say the Pacific for want of an ocean name. And he's in the middle of a storm and the waves are getting so, so bad. And he hears the the noise of waves pounding on rocks. And before long, he finds himself actually shipwrecked on these rocks. And in in the darkness of the night, he manages to make his way to the beach He's spat up on, on this beach. And he's just grateful to be alive. And in the morning, as the storm has passed and the sun comes up, He starts to assess where he is and what's happened. His beautiful yacht is gone. All he can find is the flotsam and jetsam of the wreckage that is now lapping in amongst some of the rocks. And he goes and he begins to pick up what he can. He finds bits and pieces and he brings them all back to this beach area. And he begins to put stuff together and he thinks, well, now what? And he starts to look for something to eat and water and he starts to establish a bit of a routine because everything is lost. Nobody knows what's happened to him and he's just there. Anyway, the story we can make as long as we want. But essentially, one day he's off the other side of the island looking for food and he looks up and he just sees this smoke beginning to rise. And he thinks, oh no, and he starts to run back to where he's he's gathered um stuff is from from the wreckage and he sees that it's all something has set it off and it's all burning and there's this huge column of smoke and he's left with nothing else and that night he lies down next to the embers and he thinks well that's it and he awakes in the next morning to the sound of voices and um he looks up and sees the small boat rowing towards him. Just off the island has moored a larger ship and they've dispatched a boat. And when they come and they speak to him, they say to him, we saw your smoke, so we came. Now, sometimes for us loss is the doorway to the next part of our journey. Sometimes when we think that we entering the valley of deep darkness, that there will never be in the like the end of of uh, Psalm 23 a table prepared for us in the presence of our enemies, with our head anointed with oil, our cup of the flowing. We can't see often to the end of Job's story where All the stuff that he lost was restored to him in so many different ways. All we can see often is the loss, the death of what's happening, the smoke that has gone up. We saw your smoke and we came. The sign of Jonah, the belly of the whale, the death, the loss, is the pattern for new life. And it's only through that death, that loss, that descent, that humility, that serving for all of us that we find that we grow up and become what God has called us to be. So some questions for Sunday. The first question could be this. When did God last speak to me? And what did I do to respond to it? Akuo and hupakuo. How do I respond, secondly, to God's absence or his perceived absence? Third question is perhaps this, and this is maybe the core of it. What do you think the sign of Jonah means for me right now? And then finally, we need to assess and look at this because uh, if there is no new growth in our lives, that means nothing has died. What are the signs of new growth? in your life right now.